You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome to one of the worst stories in the entire Bible, the Levite and his concubine. If you thought last Levite was bad, there's more to come. More to yeah. come. Yeah. It, it's awful, but uh, it, it's, it's a very significant story. But before we get into it, I think we need to warn people, this is not going to be an episode for kids. Yeah. If you have children listening, preview this first and see if it's appropriate. I mean, the level of dismemberment we're going into, uh, yeah. and, you know, you just... You don't want to necessarily inflict that on small children. So that's our disclaimer. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, uh, I mean, before we get into the really gruesome stuff, there's a little bit of, you know, there's some narrative. So you've got time to, to turn it off. Uh, right. But we, we want you there. to be, we want you to be aware because this is the most disturbing story of the Bible. And if you want to listen to critics of the Bible, this is always one of the first stories they want to bring up about, mm-hmm. you know, how can you believe or revere that that book that has such a horrible story about women and the violence against women well the point of the story just to put it up front is to talk about why the violence of women is counter to god's intent mm. and so the story is to show you what happens in a society that fails to value women this is not a feminist reading this is not me trying to overplay the role of women in this in the story this is just what the text shows us. Well, and it's and it's not even just so much about um, what happens in a society where you fail to value women. It's how people suffer, specifically women, mm-hmm. when we fail to value the word of God. Precisely. And um, now, and we, and I'm going to say that, uh, and I want to clarify one thing before we go too much farther. I'm not saying that because I've heard, you know, a similar. I've heard similar statements from some very complementarian. Uh, pastors that when we fail to value the word of God, we fail to value the role of women, and then they wind up wearing pants and having jobs. <laughs> and that's not what I mean when I say when we fail to value God's word, we fail to value women. I'm saying we fail to value them as equals and, and as and as people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when we when we start seeing that going on, someone's mishandling the word. Yeah. And so um, this is an extreme case, but I just want to I want to throw that out there that that's not the direction that we're going um, because that's not what we believe the Bible teaches. Right. So anyway, well, um, I just I, wanted to clarify. Like I said, it just, when I said it, it just sounded like it sounded like the beginning of some of those statements I've heard. Well, <laughs> it, it's such a difficult issue to discuss uh, the women's role in the church. Um, you know, where you come down on the, the um, equation, whether women should be in leadership or not. It's a hard issue to discuss without getting caught into that kind of um, turmoil and mm-hmm. debate. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about simply respect, value, and honor in day-to-day life. Yeah, enough to not wind up with murder yeah. and such. So let's uh, let's jump into the the text, I guess. But I, I just want to throw that I out there. I want to throw out one more caveat oh, just oh. because, okay, when we we're start— We're starting to sound like another podcast. <laughs> we better quit this. I know. Well, the problem is— when I started go- doing the notes for this, I got kind of heated and I'm not going to guarantee I'm not going to get heated again because there's some direct parallels n- with our time. Mm-hmm. And so when we get there, I'm going to bring it out and I'm not going to hold anything back on it because it's an issue that needs to be discussed. Mm-hmm. So just be aware if I get a little impassioned about this, it's because it's an important issue and I deal with women every day who have been affected by it. So, um, if that's a little bit of a teaser to keep you listening, I, I hope it worked. So, yeah. But this is, like we said, one of the most disturbing stories of the Bible. It's in Judges 19, and it runs through the end of the book, uh, chapter 21. So it is the longest sustained narrative in all of Judges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the principles in Bible study is the more space devoted to something, the more words devoted to something, the more significance it has. Right. So we see this specifically in Exodus, where the Exodus account takes up the first, you know, third to half kind of fuzzy in there. But then the last half of the book is dedicated to the building of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. So that kind of gives you an idea of how important this narrative is. 
because then just the sheer weight of words. Yeah. Well, and, and it's unfortunate that we don't have very much good coverage of this story. No, we, we really don't. And this is a story that we tend to shy away from or we tell it in isolation and we very rarely dig into what's going on. And if you don't have that story that happens before, I think you miss some things. As a matter of fact, one of our favorite, favorite teachers, uh, Marian Brand, she has a, a special on this. You can look it up on her uh, podcast, mm -hmm. Understanding Sin and Evil. She's got some great things, but I think she missed some points because she didn't include that context. So, well, um, and, and, and that's not to fault her that right. she was just going with a different emphasis. Right. Um, because, I mean, if you listen, I recommend you listen to the mm -hmm. whole thing. If if you can hang with this, some more academies than what we tend to put into things. And, and some Hebrew, actually and, spoken a lot more. Yes. And, uh, well, Emily and I were just talking about this the other day. We think she's hilarious because she'll say something in Hebrew and then it's almost like she catches herself and remembers, oh, yeah, I have an English speaking audience because she is so fluent uh, in, in hearing her speak. It is very entertaining. It's hard for me to follow her Hebrew. She goes so fast. So, so yeah, yeah. It, and it's, it, it's she's a great teacher and I'm not knocking anything she's done. She just, like you said, different emphasis and a different approach. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but check uh, check her out if, you're, if that interests you. We'll put the link in the show notes. Great podcast. Yeah. So this is deeply connected to the previous story. Like I was saying, we have um, Micah and the Levite. So we mm -hmm. have another Levite. We have shared geography. We have the armies of the 600 men. And we have references to Shiloh in both. There's more similarities, but I covered those in an earlier uh, podcast. So if you want to get deeper into that, refer back to that podcast. Sure. So um, we'll have that episode number up there eventually. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't stop to look at it. But by holding these two accounts to the end of the book, the, the author is making a statement and he's showing that the corruption in Israel is deep. This is not just isolated incidents. It's not uh, relegated to the leadership. It's not just the people. He, he's making a point that evil has become so invasive within the nation that everybody is being impacted. Mm -hmm. There's, there's no one who's immune. So, um, what we need to realize is this is kind of the, not the last event that happens because we spoke before, this is not something that is being recorded chronologically. This probably happened very early on and we actually have a tip off in the story that it did happen very early on, mm -hmm. but um, we, we are keeping it to the end of the book for that big, just, you know, knock in the jaw. Right. So um, the, all the characters in this story are nameless. And the reason why they're nameless is because you're supposed to get this idea of uniformity. Because remember the last time we had a story oh, yeah. where people were nameless, we're at the Tower of Babel, and one of the major sins there was the uniformity of the people within that context. So when you have nameless characters throughout a narrative, we have a problem. And that's already telling you that you need to be watching out for what's going to happen. And the fact that nobody's going to take a stand. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, we have uh, the beginning of the verse actually begins with, uh, in those days. There we should was, be familiar with that. <laughs> there was no king in Israel. And once again. And really, I mean, at this point in the book, you could just say in those days. Right. I mean, that's pretty popular for Jewish teachers to do that to just kind of shorten the reference every time they repeat it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we're told that this certain Levite and this certain Levite, again, that's to remind you that he doesn't have a name. And the fact that he doesn't have a name is, is to give us that tip off. And just introducing the story this way tells us things are going to go wrong. And we're told that he's sojourning and he's sojourning in the remote part of the hills of the country of Ephraim. And he took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem. Okay, so much information that if you aren't paying close attention, you're going to miss like a ton of it. Mm -hmm. So uh, like I said, the no name is, pro uh, is problematic. The fact that he took a concubine also without a name is problematic. And this is telling you that all the Levites are the same, all the women are the same, all the tribes are the same, all the, everybody is the same. Right. And can I say that again? Uh, but this is really highlighting. Well, the fact that he took a, a, a concubine from Bethlehem, which is mm -hmm. not where he was supposed to be Not at. supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, yeah, he's sojourning. Why isn't he where he belongs? 
anytime somebody in the Bible isn't where they belong, there's a problem. Probably the most famous example of this is David with Bathsheba. Yeah. Well, and you have you have the the sojourning, so that would assume that he doesn't have enough to do at the tabernacle, mm-hmm. which would mean there's not people bringing offerings and and worshiping yes. at the tabernacle. Yes, because if nobody's bringing offerings and worshiping at the tabernacle like they're supposed to, then how are the Levites sustaining themselves? Right. So you kind of have this which came first, the chicken or the egg kind of situation going on. And and the writer of Judges does not give us any kind of explanation or or understanding about what's going on behind the scenes. He's just saying this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. So um, he's from the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim. This is problematic because in Judges 5.14, this is Deborah's song. Remember, Ephraim was rooted in the Amalekites. Mm-hmm. So we know that he's in a place where not only is he not supposed to be, he's also in a place that's known for the evil residents that reside there. Right. Because the Amalekites, if you'll remember, they are the, the part of the Rephaim. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, What's going on with that? A lot of little clues. He takes a concubine. Why isn't he taking a wife? Right. He's a spiritual leader. He should be, he should have made her his wife. And the last time we had concubines show up, it wasn't good. We have Jephthah's mother. Mm-hmm. And we had, before that, we had Gideon's concubine, who was the, the mother of Abimelech, who caused all the problems. Sure. So concubines, there, there, there's an issue there. And just a little reminder, I know we've talked about before, concubine is no less a wife than any other woman a man marries at this time. She simply does not have the ketuvah, the the written agreement that says if he divorces her or he dies, she has inheritance rights. She's not going to be kicked out on the street and left destitute. Mm -hmm. And usually the only women who did not get these were women who did not have family, who were, they either didn't have family or their family wasn't powerful enough to negotiate one on their behalf. Is the ketuvah, is that, is that the actual agreement or is that like the dowry? That's the actual agreement. The actual agreement. Mm-hmm. So it's, okay. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and one, one thing that I learned um, recently, I was listening to, who was I listening to? I was listening to some Jewish podcaster mm-hmm. and he was talking about the idea of, of in, in Judaism, even today, mm-hmm. there's still a practice of post-nuptial agreements mm-hmm. that, you know, and we think of this actually, it's kind of interesting because, you know, we always think of, you can, you can do a prenuptial agreement or a postnuptial agreement. And, and in, and in America, we think of prenuptial agreement as, I don't trust you enough right. to, um, that you're going to take care of me. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to legally force you to that. Right. And in uh, different Orthodox circles, there's actually the postnuptial agreement, which after you're married for a certain amount of time, you can actually, this is almost like a vow renewal is kind of mm-hmm. how we think about it, but it's a second type of vow you can, can, can go through with your wife that is saying, I love you so much. You will always be considered my first wife mm-hmm. and I will always take care of you no matter what happens. Right. And I think that's pretty wild. Just the shift in perspective. Oh yeah. Because, uh, People will hear about this. Uh, Non-Jewish people will hear about this and think, "Oh my gosh, they must have. They must be having marital trouble." And it's like, no, that that means their marriage is great. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can promise someone to to take care of them if things are going well. I mean, that's an easy mm-hmm. promise to make. It, it only becomes a hard promise to make when things are there's trouble. You know. Mm-hmm. So it these practices of protecting women like this are, are you know they're a major part of the Jewish culture, and they this is just one. There's so many ways that women are protected under the law and not just like the Torah, but also with the Mishnah when we get into the oral law and it's normal and it actually informed a lot of the ways that our marriage laws were, were written later on through Mm -hmm. European and, and American culture. But that's a whole other story. The point is, why is this woman a concubine? Right. And all that to say this. Yeah. And that there's a problem there because the spiritual leadership should not be taking concubines. There's, there should just be one wife. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and that would be the, the main reason why he might have taken a concubine is that he had other wives. But we already know from Genesis, multiple wives are problematic. Mm-hmm. This is not the standard formula for marriage within the Old Testament. And yes, we have a lot of it talked about, but these are exceptions, not the rule. Right. And Again, uh, I think we mentioned it earlier, many times it was instituted by the women who introduced this into their marriage, not the men. 
So we can't say these are horrible men, you know, making this happen. Right. A lot of times uh, in Genesis, it was the women. But either way, it's problematic. And so we should already have our guard up with the story that something's going to go wrong. Because what we find out is she did have a father. Mm -hmm. She had somebody who could have negotiated on her behalf. And then, you know, we've got a whole new set of problems. Why isn't daddy watching out for his little girl? Mm -hmm. So, um, but before we get there, we're going to go to verse two. And it says, and his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. And there was, and was there for some four months. Um, this is our first place where we really have some kind of controversy. Uh, she was unfaithful to him. If you look up, and again, my, one of my favorite tools for this, Bible Hub, mm-hmm. looking at all the different translations, just put in your verse and it'll pull up a list. Most of the time, unfaithful was what was used. The second most popular was played the harlot or whored against him. Those are kind of a toss up. But there's a, another translation, which is she became angry with him. This is based on the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The horde against or those unfaithful is based on the Masoretic. Mm. The angry came from the Septuagint. Now, if you look at these words written in Hebrew, which you really don't have the ability for you to do right now, they really seem to be built on the word for zona, which is prostitute. Okay. And so that's why the tendency is to lean towards that that she played the harlot or she uh, was a prostitute. But the thing is, it could have been built on another word, Zena. And Zena means to become angry or reject. Okay. So that actually fits in here. And it's very much in keeping with the rest of the story, I think even more so than the unfaithful translation. Okay. Because as we progress through the story, we've got some little hints of what's going on. Um, but we should realize, you know, unfaithful wives, they were stoned. Sure. You didn't, you didn't try to reconcile with them. The, the father allows her to return home. And the thing is an unfaithful daughter returning home would have been just as humiliating for a father as it was for a husband. Mm -hmm. And he should not have allowed her to return home if she had been unfaithful. Um, he seems to be hoping for reconciliation for his daughter and his Mm son-in-law. Why would he hope for reconciliation instead of being scared for her life? Right. So that doesn't even make sense. Uh, he, he's super excited when the son-in-law does appear later. And then the husband doesn't seem to be an overly compassionate man as we go through the story. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's the Levite is. Yeah. He, he's very reactive and he's very quick to seek revenge for wrongs done against him. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that she would have been exempt from this. And he speaks kindly to her, we're going to find out later. When he comes to approach her, he, he says, the Bible says he, he came to speak to her heart, kindly to her heart, not that she was apologizing for her wrong. He seems to be realizing that he's going to have to make some amends to rebuild this marriage. So I, I don't think she was unfaithful. I, I tend to think that there was something going on. There was an argument. There was, you know, maybe he was just mean, whatever. She, she felt betrayed and upset with him. So she left. Yeah. And I, and I checked the uh, JPS to see if there was any help there. And it just says there was a time when she deserted him. Yeah. Well, the rabbis had huge debates. And that was um, interesting to see. You know, they even included things like... Uh, her hygiene was bad and he chastised her about her hygiene. And so she got upset and left. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of different ideas about why this could be one or the other. And they seem to be pretty equally divided about whether she was unfaithful or not. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if the rabbis are divided, it's not. Un- you can basically pick one, right? <laughs> right. Is, that, is that where you're going with that? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> now the, the two supporting reasons, and I want to mention them just, so everybody knows I'm trying to be as you know fair as possible, is that the supporting reasons for her being unfaithful, why that should be read that way, is no one's following the Torah, so he wouldn't have had her stoned. Okay. okay. Fair enough. Uh, prostitution was common in, in the Canaanite culture, and so you know if she was just doing what everybody else did, then why would he want to kill her? 
But the second reason is that she stayed there for four months. So long enough to show that she wasn't pregnant. Okay. And so, you know, I think they're pretty weak in the overall scheme of things. But that, those are the reasons. So, yeah, <laughs> it's it's. I do okay, so I do, I do find it funny that in the in the JPS it says a full four months, mm-hmm. and in the ESV it says some four months. Yeah, like it's it, kind of it, awkward wording. I, it, so. it is awkward, but this is this is old Hebrew, and right. so it's really hard to translate smoothly into the English. If you're going to uh, try to make a smooth translation, you've got to do a lot of work with that, and the sure. ESV does avoid that. So. Um, in the verse three, at the very last part, it says, and the, the girl's father and the girl's father saw him and he came with joy to meet him. Now, this is often puzzled commentators. And I found it interesting how many commentators were, were just, we don't know what to do with this. Why is he so happy? Well, I think the answer is pretty simple. Number one, he can return her, um, return his daughter to her rightful place. Right. You don't want your daughter to come home and live with you after she's been married and had her own house. I mean, even today, we don't want that. <laughs> you know, no, stay where you're supposed to be. But then the, the second um, thing going on here, if we look at the previous story, Levites were collectible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they were being bought and sold, paid off. Wars were being fought for them. They're being treated like good luck charms. And this is happening in the story directly prior to this one. So I think, and this is, I think, I think that the father-in-law allowed her to become a concubine, a second-rate wife, so that he would have access to this man who was going to give him prestige. Okay. That, that, I can see that. And that's, I mean, I'm reading into the text and I'm going to admit that, but I think the rest of the story bears it out because when we get into um, 3A, the, the husband arose and went back to speak to her kindly, bring her back. I'm sorry, to speak against. I already covered all this. Where am I going? So anyway, I think my notes may have gotten out of line earlier. (laughs) But oh well, yes, I did. So we're backing up. So anyway, he showed up at his father's house. Mm -hmm. We're there. He shows up with a servant and two donkeys. This is going to be important later on. And also that donkey is the, the second donkey is seen as evidence that he cared for her, that he brought her a that ride. He meant to go get her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And when they when they get there, the father-in-law makes him stay for three days. That's what the text explicitly says. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't sound like the Levite planned to stay. Yeah. Well, and I think I can't remember when we talked about that. We I think we mentioned that that making someone stay beyond when they intend to leave. Was that with, uh, mm. I don't remember which one. When we were in Genesis, that oh. making someone stay past when they intend to leave, that they're, that that's considered rude right. in the culture. And so. yeah. Yeah. And so he's the, the father is breaking his societal and social norm. Um, and on the fourth day, when the son-in-law gets up to leave, he, he says, Hey, you know, let's, let's eat another meal. Let's have another drink. Oh, look, it's too late to, to leave now. You need to stay another night. And then on the fifth day, when the father-in-law tries the same tactic again, he, he points out to the Levite, he gets a little bit more aggressive this time. He, he points out to the Levite that, you know, it's better to stay here than to go home. And the English, you, you kind of miss it. He says that last phrase, go home, is actually go to your tent. Wouldn't you rather stay in my house instead of going to your tent? Hmm. So we have that bribery theme picked up on again. You know, I will provide okay. a great place for you to live if you'll stay here and be as a son to me, like most father-in-laws consider their son-in-laws to be. Sure. So we have that con- continuation and connection back with Micah and the Levite that he bought off. And this reminds me of Laban back in Genesis when Jacob tried to leave with Rachel and Leah and his concubines. And it makes me very suspicious of the father's motive. I mean, what does he have to gain by having this Levite in his house? And it makes me think that it's not just generosity that's making him uh, extend these invitations. And, you know, the, the whole exchange just has a used Carmen kind of feel about it, just like we had with Laban. Yeah. And we know that Laban, 
he was a diviner and he was into, you know, he had the household gods and he had all the things that the, that Micah had in the last story. Mm-hmm. So if we put the two stories together, I think we can see a little bit more of the father's character. Right. And I think he's trying to replicate exactly what Micah did. And, but, you know, just but with the plain reading of the text, someone who doesn't respect boundaries is suspicious. Sure. And this is um, a little freebie here. Girls, when you're dating, if a guy doesn't respect your boundary on the first time, he's suspicious. I mean, and that's like, no, I don't want to ride home. No, I don't want you to carry my bag. You start with little boundaries. So anyway, uh, this guy's not respecting boundaries. And that's, that's a problem because we're seeing that he can be persuasive. He can try to get his own way. Why didn't he do this for his daughter? Where's her, her, her where's her ketuvah? Mm-hmm. Why, why didn't he negotiate this well for her protection and well-being? Right. This is, this is someone who is not really trying to take care of his daughter. And where's, where is she in the story? Right. Through this whole thing, she's never said a word. She went and brought the husband in. So evidently she wasn't afraid of him. Another reason why I don't think she was unfaithful. She brought him into the house. She hasn't said one thing in all of this. And during this time when they're eating, the text is very specific. It's the father-in-law and the son-in-law who are eating together. Mm-hmm. Verse 6 and verse 7, the two of them, the both of them, referring to the men. And it's the father-in-law who's always talking about the Levite's heart. The Levite never actually says anything to his wife about her heart, right. even though that's why he was supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. and. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 9, the father-in-law is saying, strengthen your heart. Let your heart be merry. Strengthen your heart again. Let your heart be merry again. Mm-hmm. Four times, the father-in-law is trying to woo the Levite instead of the Levite wooing his wife. Mm. This is not the way it's supposed to go down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, well, it's, it, those, I mean, those are things that I, you know, I, I, I recognize that in the story we had and I like, really analyzed that specific part of it. That's, that's my job. <laughs> and so but it, you're beginning to see that she is not even a central character in her own love story. Right. She should be the one who is being spoken to, spoken about, but she is forgotten once the guys get together. And this is foreshadowing what's getting ready to happen. So in verse 10, they, they leave. And we're reminded once again that the Levite is traveling with his concubine, his servant, and his two donkeys. And the servant suggests that they, they spend the night at Jabus. And it has uh, included in there that Jabus is Jerusalem. So okay. this is a little tip off. A few little things this tells us. We knew that the story has been recorded after David had uh, conquered Jabus and renamed it Jerusalem. We know that the story existed before. David had um, had uh, conquered Jabus, mm-hmm. so the final the final writing is after, but the story exists before. Okay, and we know that the the editor was concerned that his audience would not understand. So it, the final writing is sometimes significantly after David, and the, so that does help us place it more in the time of Manasseh. So anyhow, those are just some little clues that are in the scripture. We won't go any deeper than that. But the master, 100%, the Levite, completely rejects the idea of staying at Jabez. Uh, he doesn't want to spend the night in a city full of foreigners. Uh, he wants to go ahead and go to Gibeah or Ramah. Mm-hmm. These are Israelite cities. He knows the people who live there. And the idea makes sense. We're going to be safer with the people from our own nation. Well, you'd think so. You would hope. And so that's, that's the problem with the story is everything you expect isn't what's happening. We should have expected the father to be angry or fear, fearful when the Levite shows up. He's not. We would expect the people of Javis to be violent and the people from Israel to be peaceful and welcoming. They're not. And the story is 100%. And you know, everything you expect is going to be turned on its head. Because you need to recognize that this is a time of conflict and chaos where nothing is what it seems. Mm-hmm. So um, the um, thing that I found interesting about this is the servant also never has a name. 
Now, if you remember from our story with Joseph, a lot of times an unnamed servant in the Bible is actually a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And this makes it particularly troubling that if the servant does represent the Holy Spirit in this particular passage, that a Levite, the spiritual leadership of Israel, is not listening to God. Hmm. And this is the last time after um, this last time the servant speaks. And after they get to Gibeah, the servant disappears from the story altogether. Hmm. So it, it's interesting to me that this, this symbol that we've seen throughout Genesis, and we, we're going to see it again in Ruth, is present here again. And it makes you wonder what, what's going on that the Levite is so dense that he, he has you know, completely missing the mark on everything he should be doing. So, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in verse 14 and 15, they are close to Gibeah and, you know, night's falling and they, they've been traveling. And the Bible makes it very clear that this, this city belongs to Benjamin. And this is, connects the whole story to the story of Saul. That's going to be important later. And when they get there, no one takes them in. They, um, they're left out in the city square, which this contrast with what we saw from the father-in-law, the, who was, you know, overly generous, overly hospitable, and now no one is taking them in. This also connects it, by the way, to the birth narrative of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's no room in the end kind of thing. And we aren't going to talk about whether it was really an end or not. That's not important. Mm-hmm. The, the point is, no one is taking care of people the way they were supposed to be. And this is what they were trying to avoid by not going to Jabus. And the Israelites are basically acting like the Jebusites. So in verse 16 and 17, the old man returns home from work and he sees them. And there's a lot of information in these verses. Now, he's an old man, so he was probably alive during at least part of the conquest of Canaan. Mm -hmm. So he's seen some pretty significant events in the formation of Israel as a nation. And he should have also been alive during that generation that was still teaching Torah. Right. And so he was not somebody who was uninformed. He's from the hill country of Ephraim. We already talked about how that's problematic because Ephraim is rooted in the Amalekites, the place that the Levite now lives, the old man is from. So once again, we have the reversal. Basically what they're saying, he's not from the city, so he doesn't share the city's values. Mm -hmm. But you still have to ask, why is he in Gibeah? the land of the Benjaminites. He's not where he belongs. And again, this is problematic. And so he, he asked the, the Levite, where are you going? You know, what, what are you doing? And the Levite, this is, I think, where we really get a view of his character more so than what we've seen before. Mm-hmm. Because he says, you know, I'm, I'm passing through from Bethlehem and Judah. I'm going to the remote parts of the whole country in Judah. And I'm going to the house of the Lord. This is the first time we have any indication this is what he's planning to do. This is almost like he's legitimizing his trip. He didn't say, I went to go fetch my wife who ran away from me. He, he says, oh, no, I'm making this pilgrimage to, to go see, you know, do my, my holy duty. And he kind of makes himself a more, um, a more inviting guest, somebody who's more appealing. And, it, you know, it's a, it's a straight shot. I looked at a map from uh, Bethlehem to Jerusalem to Gibeah, and you can go straight on up to Bethel and to Shiloh. So either of those locations okay. would, have been, um, would have been okay for him to go to. This is the first mention of the house of the Lord. This is different than what we had in the last story, uh, with Micah and even Shiloh being called the house of Elohim. So this time it is the house of Yahweh. Okay. So first time we have that, and it wouldn't have been unusual for a Levite to go there. Right. He would have been just functioning in his normal capacity. But this feels like more of a manipulation than the actual truth at this point. Sure. And the other thing, too, is if he's pious enough to go to Shiloh, then why isn't he pious enough to fulfill the laws concerning unfaithful wives? So there's so many contradictions and unanswered questions with all of this. Right. Yeah, it's, it is. I mean, and the story's just weird in and of itself. 
Yeah. Because right, and especially right now, it sounds like it's a fairly nondescript story. Of a, <laughs> well, that's going to change. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it, it it's a really weird setup. I I, mean, I think it's an, a nondescript story to this point because we don't know all the background. We don't know all the customs. We aren't familiar with the geography. Mm-hmm. I, I think if, if we were a Jewish reader in the time of Manasseh reading this, we would automatically be going, there's a problem, there's a problem, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, we've got this strange behavior. We have unanswered questions. Uh, we have times when religious observances are strictly adhered to. We've got times when they're completely forgotten. It, it just, it, it's twisted. Yeah. There, there's no other word for it, really. It, it's just twisted. And, you know, and, and of course, everybody, nobody is where they belong. Right. And so um, that's something I think we need to be paying attention to. Are you where you belong? Or am I where I belong? And where do we belong? Mm-hmm. So, um, but all of this is by design because it's supposed to keep us off kilter. Right. We, we as readers are supposed to feel just a little uneasy with it. And again, the writer of Judges is showing what a great writer he is. So, um, verse 19, uh, it really highlights the problems of what's going on because the Levite is explaining, hey, you know, we've got provision and food and we can take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. We just really need a place to get in out of the rain, basically. Right. And, you know, he, he showed that he's prepared to be a good guest. He's prepared, prepared to go above and beyond what's required of him. It's the people of the city who are not acting appropriately. So verse 21, 20 and 21, the, the old man, he, he says, you know, you're going to come back. Don't worry about it. I got you. I've got food for everybody. I'll take care of things. And it, there seems to be this indication it takes an outsider from the city to show that this is what's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. You need somebody who isn't part of this culture to step in and say, here's the right thing to do. Right. And so he, you know, he, he does all the right things. He, he gives them food. He gives them shelter. He um, offers to take care of their donkeys. He, he washes their feet. And presumably this is the feet of the Levite and his wife because the servant, he's gone. At this point, we don't hear any more about him. Right. So where, where is he? And his absence, by the way, is going to be really, really important. And verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry... We all know this means as they were getting drunk. Mm-hmm. So um, there, there was a knock at the door and behold, okay, so we haven't heard this in a little while. This is sight language. Mm-hmm. There were the men of the city were at the door. They were worthless fellows beating down at the door is what my ESV says. And I think the, the JPS probably says the same thing. I'll double check. I'm, I'm pretty sure it does. <laughs> yeah, th- this... This phrase, uh, it's actually used 27 times in the Bible. It's a, it's a significant phrase. Um, and I'm letting you see if you got it there. Well, I, I'm looking. I'm going to see if it says or not. I mean, go ahead. I mean, <laughs> okay. This so, phrase is sons of Leal. Yes, the phrase is sons of Leal. It, it's literally in... It looks like it's spelled Belial. <laughs> right, Belial. which is like how I learned to say it when I was younger. So if I slip into that, forgive me. Um. This is a completely different word than the worthless fellows that Jephthah was with. Uh, With Jephthah, it really is. They're just worthless fellows. This one just says a depraved lot. Okay. That's actually probably closer. Um, But the the Dictionary of Demons and Deities, uh, which is a fabulous resource. You can find it online in PDF. You can buy it on Amazon. I think it's like 400 bucks right now. So guess which version I used. (laughs) <laughs> and so they said in most of the Old Testament attestations, Leal functions as an emotive term to describe individuals or groups who commit the most heinous crimes, crimes against the Israelite religious or social order, as well as uh, their acts. Okay. Uh, like I said, 27 times, it breaks the rules for a proper name and is often because it's often presented in the plural. And, or it has the, mm-hmm. the um, definite article attached to it. Sure. So, um, you know, I say Nathan, not the Nathan. And, right. you know, that's just weird. But we also find this, 
the same usage, these same plural terms, uh, the, the definite article, we find that with Satan. Mm-hmm. So uh, ha-Satan or the Satan, and we've talked about how that's a role and a mm-hmm. title. It's not necessarily the name of an individual. It doesn't really become that until the New Testament. Sure. And Leal kind of follows the same idea. And the, the exact meaning of this word is very highly disputed. We, we think that um, it, it's two words actually put together. One is not, and then the second word is worthy. So not worthy, and that's where the worthless comes from. Okay, that and makes we, sense. Yeah. And English Bibles rarely translate it literally. I think the King James is one of the few translations that actually does retain, um, excuse me, the sons of Leal. Okay. Uh, usually it is worthless. They, what it is, the, the translators are choosing to translate it as an idiom, the meaning of the idiom mm-hmm. versus the literal word for word. Right. Now, we do have it in the, in the New Testament. It's in 1 Corinthians 6.15. Who, uh, what accord has Christ with Leal? What portion does um, a believer share with the unbeliever? So that's Paul writing there. We have several Old Testament references, and I want to kind of give you a flavor of what those are. Deuteronomy 13, 12, and 13. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell, there are certain worthless center, uh, fellows, sorry, certain worthless fellows, b'nai all, have gone out among you and have drawn away from the inhabitants of the city. Let us go out and serve other gods. We also have it in First Kings, and that's when Naboth's uh, orchard, when uh, Ahab has the guy killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sons of Leal uh, mentioned there. David calls Nabal a son of Leal. First uh, Samuel, men who oppose Paul as, Saul as king are B'nai Bleal. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hannah calls herself a daughter, of, uh, not to ask, not to be confused with the daughter of Bleal. When Eli hmm. approaches her, where Eli's sons later are called the sons of Bleal. That's very interesting. That's a quite... Yes, and yeah. we get to get into that soon. I'm saying that's quite the interesting <laughs> reversal there. Yes. Um, Psalms 1814 uh, has the phrase torrents of destruction, actually torrents of Leal. Okay. So Webb sees the manner in which Leal is used as in the Hebrew scripture. It, it is an idiom. Mm-hmm. He doesn't see it as a, as a proper name until we get to the second, second temple um, Time and period. Yeah, second temple literature. Yeah. So in Qumran, which that's the Dead Sea Scrolls, it, we have lots of references to Blial. Uh, again, Marion Brand has a lot of work on Second Temple Lit and these different um, Satan-like figures that are, they're throughout Second Temple Lit. They are not all Satan. They have lots of different names. And so she talks about that. Most notably, Blial shows up in the War Scroll and the Thanksgiving Scroll. And they describe him as this evil figure that rules over this age or over that age. Right. And he is opposed by Michael. And when, he is, when Michael has defeated Leal, then God's going to rule again in glory. And then, but it's kind of used, um, it's kind of code. Right. And the code is um, that Leal stands in for either the high priest who is considered to be wicked by the Essenes. He wasn't nearly good enough, righteous enough, despite what we say about Pharisees and Sadducees in Christian circles. Sure. This guy was just messed up. Uh, And then Michael stands in for the teacher of righteousness, the guy who really knew how things worked. Yeah. And we don't do stuff like that today, thankfully. No, no. None of us seem to have the corner market on the truth (laughs) these days. (laughs) uh, We also have it in the Sibylline Oracles with... um, which was written at the same time Corinthians was, and it plays on the themes of light and dark, which Paul is also playing off themes of light and dark. Mm-hmm. Most scholars agree that Blial in the Bible is not to be seen as a literal entity, that this is a, um, a title. And so when you say sons of Blial, you're saying they're having the quality of, or the, the characteristics of, they've aligned themselves with. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I, I don't know. I, I kind of have a problem with, yes, I understand that, that we really don't see this happening until Second Temple Lit, until we get into those Dead Sea Scrolls and even into the New Testament. I think we should leave the door open a little bit. I, I think that we need to accept that there might be the possibility 
that even though this is a title and not a, a proper name, that the title is referring to something real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just as Satan isn't a proper name until the New Testament, it's still referring to something very real. Right. And sons in the, uh, in the Bible doesn't necessarily refer to biological sons, but it does refer to those having the same quality. Mm-hmm. And we see that even with the sons of God. And, you know, it is the spiritual family. And we see that, you know, First John 3, 1, uh, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God or the sons of God. Mm-hmm. Romans eight fourteen again, we've got that on and on. I won't read all of that. So I don't see any reason that we should use it differently than, um, than what we use sons of God. Sure. I, I think it's, it's okay. Um, the, um, the idea that this, this, whatever this title applies to the spiritual entity is worthless. That makes perfect sense mm. because I mean, in Israel, any God aside from Yahweh is worthless. Right. Well, and I think um, I think it would be appropriate to apply that kind of idea of you know the sons of whether or not you there's an actual entity out there. I think especially when you see what they start doing in the the chapter to come. Yeah. Or in the second part of the chapter. Yeah. Well, and that's that's the thing. And whenever we look at the behavior, who who are they looking like? And I also want to put out there too in Genesis three fifteen. Um, God tells Eve. He says, "I'll put enmity," or tells the serpent. Sorry, the Nakash. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Mm-hmm. So what most people overlook, they're, I mean, we look at Eve's offspring, we know that that's going to be the Messiah. We're happy about that. Mm-hmm. But he tells the Nakash, you're going to have offspring. You're going to have sons. And we don't, we don't pay attention to that. Right. And now, does he mean that the, the Nakash is literally going to, you know, get married? Reproduce. And, yeah. Yeah. Probably not. But, you know, we aren't literal reproductions from God. You know, Jesus is the only one that... Sure. That holds that place. So I, I can see Belial kind of functioning as a title for any God who's not Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And I see that particularly based on Second Corinthians, because notice what Paul does. What accord does Christ have with Belial? Christ is a title. And if Belial's a title, they're functioning kind of equally in that equation. Sure. And so, um, you know, Paul could have easily said the name of any other God. He chose not to. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's also important that we need to remember in this particular case that the, the Levite chose not to go to Jabus or Jerusalem because there were no sons of Israel there. Mm-hmm. And he leaves that place behind on the journey to go to Gibeah where he encounters the sons of Leal. So they are functioning as direct opposites. So right. I see no reason to, to lay aside this, this title of son. And right. also, if you get into, you know, divine counsel worldview, then that really opens up a wonderful can of worms of who are these sons. Sure. So we can, we can talk more about that with Hannah. But I wanted to give you a good background. This is, this is evil personified. Mm-hmm. And this is not just oh these people have bad attitude that these people were so in alignment with a god an entity that was counter to the god of israel and that's what we can't miss right so verse 22b sons of Belial surrounded the house beating at the door and they said to the old man the master of the house bring out the man who came into you it came into your house that we may know him now no sounds like they're inviting him out to tea. Right. This is but not But anyone it. who reads the Bible long enough knows, <laughs> the, knows what this idiom is. And we should probably point out this is where it's going to start getting graphic. Yep. So if you, you know, if you want to turn it off, this is a good point. So these men, when they want to know him, this is they want to rape him. And the men are in violation of three laws and standards of behavior for this time. They're breaking the laws of hospitality. Now, these are cultural. These are not recorded in the Torah. This is just what's expected if you live in this area. Yeah, it's a bare minimum of, of, mm-hmm. of being a, a decent human being. Yes. Uh, they're breaking the laws and customs concerning marriage. 
Again, both laws recorded in the Torah, but also of the culture and society of that time. They're also breaking the laws of homosexual acts, which is definitely addressed in the Torah. And this is a decisive act. They go from simple neglect, which is what they were exhibiting before by not Mm -hmm. taking him in. Now they're actively making, they're doing evil against this guy. Sure. And they're willing participants in this. And that's another reason why some people have rejected uh, worthless as being too weak of a translation. Right. And I honestly, I I find the ESV to be too weak of a translation throughout the story. And we're going to talk some more about that. But (laughs) that's so the old man, he he goes out and he addresses the crowd. Notice he he goes out. Uh, That's verse 23. He doesn't yell through the door. He actually goes in front of them and he says, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly sir, since this man has come into my house and do not do this vile thing. And, and for this moment, we've got this hope. We, we've got the, this little shining glimmer of, hey, he's going to stand up. He's going to do the right thing. Everything's going to be good. He rebukes them. He tells them what they're going to do is evil. He's saying all the right words. But why is he calling them brothers? Right. Is, is this a strategic move? That would have been my thought. Would have been like to like, calm down. Everyone just, well, we're all from the same city here. Well, and that's the thing. He's not. Well, we're all living in the same city here. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, that, that's what, to me, it sounds more rhetorical than anything. I, I know. I, and that, but that's the question that, that you kind of, the writer puts in your mind. And you know, when he calls it evil, he's actually using the, the, the Hebrew word there, ra'ah. And throughout the first uh, half of Judges, we were told over and over again that people did ra'ah, what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I've got a list of seven different verses where that, that appears. And vile thing literally means senseless, empty, or worthless. And the word sounds like blial. Sure. And so it's built kind of on that same stem. Um, and so we've got, we got this little bit of hope. Hey, we got, we've got a hero. We've got somebody who's going to get it right. And then verse 24, he says, behold, and we know that anytime there's sight language in the judges, there's a problem. And right. we're right back there. Behold, here are my virgin daughter. Here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them. Do what seems good to you. But against this man, do do not do this outrageous thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It, it just blows my mind. I, I can't even imagine on this. Well, I mean, it's, you, you can't hurt him, but here's the women. Yeah. No, this is not how it works. This is not how any of it works. And the, the, the translation here is so tepid. It's so weak and it just, it, it irritates me. This is one of those points where I got really frustrated. Um, violate and there actually means humiliate them. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, humiliate. What, what a horrible word. Do what seems good to you. That's what the English says. The Hebrew is actually built on the root for eyes. It, it literally is do what's right in your eyes is mm. what the, you know, do, it's right in these guys' eyes to do these horrible things. Right. And, and now think about that. They have abandoned a standard of right and wrong behavior so that they can do what they deem right and wrong according to their own inner conscience, morals, whatever, mm-hmm. which seems to be completely broken. And the, the old man is showing that he's just like them. He's not appealing to them to do what's right in the eyes of God. He's saying, hey, what you think is right, I think is wrong. So right. you need to align your vision with me, not go with what you think is right in and of yourself. And is that not today's culture? Yeah. I mean, this is, he's saying, I have a different idea of good than you. And so my idea is superior, but all I can appeal to is myself. Sure. He's not, he's not appealing to God. and. It's it's okay that you you abuse these women, and as long as you don't hurt the man. And so I kind of rewrote this in Emily edit. Okay. Uh oh. 
Look, it isn't good for you to humiliate my guest like this, but I see no problem if you want to abuse the women. Even my daughter, even his wife, you can do whatever you want. You know, it, it's just, bad for you to do this to a man. We don't care if you do it to women. Yeah. And again, notice who's missing, the servant, mm-hmm. and which is the presence of God. He's gone. Mm-hmm. He, he, he's gone. And that's, that's a horrible thing because it also reveals that the target, you know, who they want is the Levite. And why do they want the Levite? Because he's the spiritual re- uh, leadership in Israel. They, mm-hmm. They're targeting the one who should be leading people back to God, and they're trying to destroy him. Which really makes you wonder about the phrasing there. I mean, because if, if, if they recognize him as a Levite and a spiritual leader, mm-hmm. and they're saying, come that we may know him, are they, are they wanting to, I mean, it, I mean, the, the question I have, is this some kind of cultic practice that they want to get involved with, the, get a priest involved with, so that maybe it'll work this time or something? If they're sons of Leal who are serving these other gods, then why not? Yeah. I, I mean... mean Sexual, yeah, sexual abuse is a part of a lot of these rituals, and they're still occurring today. That this this idea of when you damage someone sexually, you were damaging them spiritually. And as a spiritual leader, and I didn't figure we go there. As a spiritual leader of this nation, if they can damage him, then they are damaging the nation. So we have this dynamic of spiritual warfare going on here. It's not just lust. It's not just oh we don't know what to do with ourselves because we want him so bad. If they just wanted to have sex with another man, why aren't they yelling for the servant too? Right. They don't want the servant. They just want the Levite. Right. And yeah. And surely there's other men in town. Well, that's the thing. I mean, this is, this is violence. This is, in a lot of ways, this really isn't about homosexuality at all. It is about the violent act that's going mm-hmm. on here. Mm-hmm. And the violent act is against the, the spiritual, spiritual leadership yeah. for the purpose of humiliation. And that's, that's a hard thing for us to, to think about that this is beyond just sexual desire. I, I think unless you're, you're a, debra- a really depraved person, that to, to put all the components in place and think that it's this cold-hearted and this, this mm-hmm. you know. Well, you don't even want to put all the components mm-hmm. in place to, to think about it. Well, it's, yeah. It's just, it's terrible well and and then when you contrast this to how the levite in the past story was treated mm-hmm. this is to show you how much further israelite israel sorry how much further israel or the israelites have, have progressed in their evil wickedness because mm-hmm. the levite was pursued before but he was pursued for honor he was pursued for glory he mm-hmm. was pursued mm-hmm. to be bought off this levite refused to be bought off when he walked out of the father-in-law's house and says, I, you know, I don't care if you have a house and I just have a tent. I'm still going back to my place. Yeah. He's saying, I'm not going to be bought by your riches. I'm not even going to be bribed with your daughter. And where the Levite in the previous story could be bribed and he could be manipulated. This one has been above that. So there's only one thing left to do. And that's a full frontal assault. No pun intended. And so, so yeah. yeah, that's it, it's it, it's an outright spiritual attack. And I think that's what we need to be looking at when you put the stories together. If the, the message really becomes, if a spiritual leader can be bought off, the enemy's great with that. That's fine. They'll live with that. They will come up with the means and the funds to do that. If they have to be destroyed through other means, then that's what's going to happen next. And I'm, you know, this is hard core spiritual warfare talk, which I normally kind of shy away from because it can get crazy. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just so evident there within the text yeah. and the way things are going. So it's, it's a hard story to listen to and we aren't even to the worst of it. Right. Yeah. We're, we're just getting started. So um, I think before we can get into that though, we're going to need some more time. Yeah. Um, not, <laughs> Absolutely. Just, not just to have a break, but we just don't have enough time to cover it uh, this mm-hmm. week. So um, everyone... Uh, if this topic interests you, uh, tune in next week and we'll find out what else happens. It's going to be kind of nuts. Um, but, you know, it's it's one of these things that, you know, when we set out to do this, we actually decided we wanted to try some of the to cover some of the more difficult passages so mm-hmm. that people would know what to do with them. Because so often uh, 
the church doesn't teach on these and we we need to know a little bit more of, of how to interpret them yeah and um so we hope we're doing that um if you're uh enjoying it please uh let us know mm-hmm. uh hit us up on ravencreeksc.com uh or ravencreeksc on all the social media we'll be glad to hear from you there we do apologize if it takes a while for us to get back to you it's only the two of us uh on this program so um if you do like what you heard and you want people to uh to to benefit from it uh maybe hit share or subscribe um maybe you uh would share another episode with someone first maybe it's not the one <laughs> right. to like to have them jump into probably not next week's either probably not next week but yes um, we love having you here. We love doing this and we hope we can continue doing it for a long time. So absolutely, come join us next week and we will be here. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.